Matthew chapter 6. All right, Matthew chapter 6, we're going to start in verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts. As we have forgiven our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let's bow our heads. Dear God, thank you for this day. Um, thank you that we can come together and worship and, and study your word, God. And, and we're, we're thankful for the, the worship we've already done. And, and God, we just thank you for Father's Day. And we thank you for fathers. We, we thank you, God, for men that you've placed in, in people's lives to to shepherd them and, and lead them, God, and, and to, to be a father. Um, and God, we also pray for those that this is not maybe a happy day, whether it's through a, a loss of a parent or maybe a loss of a child. God, for some, today is, is a painful day. And, and God, we, we pray for those, or whether it's a frayed relationship with the father. Um, God, we pray that you minister to people through those hardships and, and that you speak to people. And God, even good fathers, we pray that your sufficiency and goodness is seen through the weakness of earthly fathers, God, and that the best a father can do on earth is point to the true heavenly father, which is you. And God, we are, we're thankful for gospel preaching, um, not just here, God, but, but at churches across the world, country, state, county. And specifically, we are thankful for the gospel ministry at, at River Oaks this morning. We pray that seeds were planted and will grow to fruition, God. Um, and we pray for the, for the next few minutes here that, that I'm able to speak clearly as we go through this, this sermon, God, and, and that um, we have ears to hear, and, and I'm able to, to articulate your word, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, so as, as Ash kind of set up, we're doing a mini-series on the Trinity. So last week, Brandon did, did a sermon on the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to talk about the Father this week, and Cody's going to talk about the Son next week. Um, so when I started looking at the sermon and studying for the sermon, I realized something kind of interesting, and, and I made this comment to Cody and Brandon and Ash, but in a sense, I hadn't really thought about the Father that much individually. So we think about the Son a lot as Christians, right? The Son is the one who came, died, resurrected. It's through the Son we have eternal life, and it's the Son's return that we're anticipating. So obviously, a lot of Christianity, I mean, we get our name from him, Christ, is based around looking at the Son and beholding the Son. Um, we also think about the Holy Spirit a lot. The Holy Spirit is the one, the helper, the counselor who has come and walks with us, right? The Holy Spirit is who Jesus sent to be there with us. Brandon talked about that last week in our suffering and also in our gospel ministry. And, and we have the Holy Spirit daily in our lives. Uh, so naturally, we tend to think about the Holy Spirit. I think, and maybe I'm alone in this, but, but I don't think I am. I think sometimes we neglect to really reflect on the Father and what the Father does and the Father's role in all of this. Um, so my hope is to take the next few minutes and kind of reflect on the Father and reflect on how we relate to the Father and, and what that means in our lives. So I, I want to start by kind of doing almost a systematic-ish overview of some of the things we know about the Father. First and foremost, God is the creator. He's creator God. Genesis 1-1 says, 
in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. So from the get-go, God the Father is the one who made all of this. He, he is the creator God. But it goes a step further. God is active in and sovereign over that creation. God is not just a watchmaker God who set up the world to function and then takes a step out of the picture. He is intimately involved in the day-to-day workings of the world that he has created. A really cool picture of this is seen in the story of Joseph. So I'm sure all of you know the story of Joseph. He was Jacob's favorite son. The brothers got jealous. Um, They decided to kill him. And then one brother very nobly says, what if we just sell him into slavery instead? So that's what they do. They sell him into slavery. He goes to Egypt through God working things out. No matter what station of life Joseph is in, he honors God. He uses the gifts God has given him. And he's eventually given a chance to basically set up Egypt to save food to make it through a famine. And so through this process, Joseph meets his brothers again. He gets his whole family to move to Egypt. And then finally, Jacob dies, right? Because he was an old man, he dies. So you have the scene, Jacob is dead, and Joseph's brothers are freaking out. They're like, I don't know what Joseph's going to do. I mean, the dad's gone. He was probably only keeping us alive because he didn't want to make dad sad. But now dad's gone. He's probably going to kill us or, or something. So there's the scene in Genesis chapter 50 where the brothers come to Joseph and they're like, hey, please don't kill us. And Joseph looks at them and he basically says, I'm not God. And then he ends his little speech with verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So you have a picture here of Joseph's brothers were active agents making decisions, but God was so intimately involved in the inner workings of what was going on. God had an intention for those actions and meant them for good, even though the people doing them's intentions was evil. So you have a picture of God being intimately involved in creation and even the day to day stuff working together his plans. Right. So his ultimate plan was to save his people. And he accomplishes that by working through the actions of Joseph's brothers. Uh, another picture of this in the New Testament, a verse that we all know, Romans eight twenty eight, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That doesn't happen if God is not intimately involved in creation. He can't sit back on the couch actively and also promise all things are going to work together for our good, right? That only happens if God is intimately involved. Uh, Kind of continuing this train of thought, God is sovereign even over the most powerful nations. So God is not just sovereign over what I do and normal stuff. There is no dynasty, emperor, empire, country, nation that can stand up to the will of God. Uh, You see that throughout the scripture. You see it throughout history. Uh, Just a quick verse, Daniel chapter 2, verse 21. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. So no king is bigger than God. God sets up kings. He raises up some kings for his purposes and then brings down those kings for his purposes. God is the boss of every nation. No nation can stand up to God. And and kind of final, the last verse we're going to look at quickly here. God is merciful, but he is also just. He is also holy. So there's this uh, passage that I think is really fascinating. I almost did it as my sermon, but I kind of kept coming back to the Lord's Prayer that we're looking at. But the the backup passage I was going to do was Exodus chapter 34, verses 5 through 7. And so what's going on here is Moses is on Mount Sinai, and he's getting the Ten Commandments for the second time. He got them once and then broke them because Israel was being silly. So he's back up on Mount Sinai to get the commandments again. And 
basically God comes down from heaven and introduces himself to Moses in a sense. And this is what he said. This is uh, Exodus 34 verses 5 through 7. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So God's core identity, his core traits that he wanted Moses to understand being tied up with his name is that he is merciful, he's gracious, he has steadfast love, but he's not going to let stuff go. He's not going to compromise his holiness. God is 100% holy and 100% love, which at the time seemed like a contradiction. We now know that God accomplishes that through the work of Jesus. Uh, but but those two things are seen in this verse, and, and that's at the core of who God is. So these are just a few things that the scriptures show us about the nature of God the Father. Not to mention that that we see that, that God is, is unchangeable. He's unchanging, right? God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Uh, he's eternal. He pre-exists everything. He's not created. He is the creator. He is loving. He is gracious. He is jealous. We see God be wrathful, gracious, steadfast. We see so many things about God the Father. And, and God is, is beyond comprehension. He's larger. He's expansive. He is transcendent. So how do we relate to God then? How does that work? So if we can see all these things about God, then what does our day-to-day walk relationship to God look like? Uh, well, looking at the Lord's Prayer and Scripture as a whole, I, say, I believe that we relate to God in two ways, as Father and as King. So let's, let's jump back uh, to, the, to the passage here, uh, verse 7 and 8. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, our Father. So first and foremost, God is our Father. So the question is, how does God become our father? And that is through the spirit of adoption. So, so two kind of verses here to think about. Um, and you don't have to turn there. I'll just read them. Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Uh, another verse, similar vein, Romans eight fourteen through 16. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our hearts that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So we see a few parallels in these verses. There's this idea of sonship and of heirship and of a spirit crying, Abba, Father. 
and, and what all these points to is a change in the dynamic of our relationship with God the Father. So before Christ, our relationship looked one way, and after Christ, it looks another. Before Christ, we were, we were slaves. We were rebels. God looked at us, and we looked at God as a master, basically, um, and, a, and a master that we didn't like. We were unworthy to stand before God. We were unworthy to talk to God. But even if we were worthy, we wouldn't have wanted to. We hated God in our fallen state. And then Jesus comes. And through Christ, we have the spirit of adoption. So through our this, this fancy theological concept, it's not that fancy, but union with Christ, which basically means that when we're saved, we're united with Christ. Through that union with Christ, we now share in the sonship that Christ has. So we are now relate to God as a son relates to a father, no longer as a slave. We're now heirs to the kingdom rather than subjects or rebels of the kingdom. Think about the, the difference of that relationship. So imagine we are in the kingdom of Blount County, and I am the king. I'm the king of Blount County now. My relationship to Tim and his relationship to the kingdom is going to be different than Emmett's relationship to the kingdom. Emmett is my oldest son. Uh, so Emmett, when I die, will inherit the kingdom to a certain sense. He will become the king of Blunt County like I am the king of Blunt County. He will partake in my leadership and my ownership of Blunt County. Tim, on the other hand, is just a dude. I mean, he may be a nice dude, but he's never going to be king of Blunt County. That's, that's for my heirs. Uh, so that's, in a sense, the shift in relationship we have with God. When we partake in heirship, we become part of the inheritance that God has won by death on the cross. We become part of the kingdom of God, heirs of the kingdom of God, rather than just subjects or rebels to it. It's a beautiful picture. Uh, second point, he is a good father who knows what we need before we ask him. So first we are adopted to become sons, and now because we are adopted, God is a good father who knows what we need before we ask him. Uh, in Luke, there's a, there's a cool verse here, Luke 11, chapter 11, verses 11 through 13. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? God knows what we need before we ask. And because of that, he will give us what we need. God is a good father who does not want to give us a scorpion when we've asked for food. He wants to give us food. Now, Kind of a side note or, or a digression here. I think a key thing to look at is God gives us what we need, not necessarily what we ask for or what we think we want. Um, God is a loving father that loves us too much to let us destroy ourselves with our own silly requests. God gives us what we need. Uh, a picture of that is uh, the other day, my, my son Emmett woke up and he wanted breakfast. And he said, Daddy, can I have a snack? And I'm like, yeah, sure. It's 6.45 in the morning. Let's get your breakfast. So we go into the kitchen, we have cereal bars, applesauce, yogurt, all the normal breakfast stuff. And I'm like, all right, buddy, what do you want? You can have any of these things. And he says, I want marshmallows. Can I have marshmallows? No, you can't have marshmallows. And even though I love my son and I want to give him what he needs and he asked for marshmallows, because I love him, I didn't give him marshmallows. You know why? Because if he had marshmallows every meal for the rest of his life, he would die. Because marshmallows are just sugar air. So because I love my son, I gave him something he actually needed rather than just what he asked for. 
And so I think that's what happens a lot of time in our lives. You know, I, when I was in middle school, I really wanted to be in the NBA. Um, some of you know that. Uh, and, you know, I, I imagine in my middle school, whatever, I, I prayed for that. And I was like, God, make me into the NBA, please. As you can see, that was never in the cards for me, but I, I still prayed it. But because God loves me, he didn't put me in that position because, in a sense, it would have destroyed me, right? Um, if you pray to win the lottery and you don't win it, it's probably because $120 million would not be good for your spiritual life. And so that's what God does. He, he answers our prayer by giving us what we need, not necessarily what we want or what we ask for. And, and a cool thing happens, too, I, I believe, and I've felt this in my life, and I'm sure people have also, is that when you pray more and you're continually asking God, you'll find that your desires change and shift to become more like God's will. So you may pray initially, and your prayers may be selfish or not in line with God's will, and you may be praying for things that God does not want for your life. But if you're genuinely praying, genuinely reaching out to God, genuinely studying God's word, you'll find that your prayers shift and become more and more in line with God's will so that you're praying God's will and you're praying for the needs that God is going to give you. A third point on this, Jesus encourages us to approach the father as father, which may sound redundant, but I think it's an important thing to notice is that God has a fatherly relationship with us. And Jesus encourages that he encourages us to approach the father as you would a father. And think about how crazy that would have been. Now that's normal for us. That's kind of been baked into our thought and our theology for the last 2,000 years. But when Jesus said this, it was radical. Um, if, if you look at God in the Old Testament, it's, you know, a lot of the verses we talked about at the front end. God being the sovereign creator, king, and all those things are 100% true. They didn't conceptualize God as the one that they could walk to and talk to directly. In fact, they couldn't. They had to go through the high priest. They had to go through the sacrificial system. So Jesus comes on the scene and says, we're, we're doing, this is different. This is the fulfillment of that. You can now approach God as father. You can now talk to God the way you would talk to a father. And so looking at this prayer, uh, just some of the things that Jesus encourages us to ask God about. Um, daily sustenance, our daily bread, forgiveness, strength to forgive others, deliverance from evil. On one level, these are big things, but on another level, these are just mundane, day-to-day things. Jesus is encouraging us to approach God daily and asking God for what we need daily. A really interesting verse to this end is is the parable of the persistent widow. It's over in Luke 18, verses 2 through 7. Um, So the parable goes, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? So what this parable is basically saying is that even people who don't, care about God or care about their fellow man will give in if you pester him a bunch. So how much more will God who does care about you want to give you what you're asking for or at least fulfill the need that you're presenting before God if you ask him a bunch? And further, you don't even need to ask him that often because he does love you. He's a good father that answered your requests. But to me, that that almost seems 
nuts, in a sense, that Jesus is basically encouraging us to pester God until he, until he answers our prayers. But that's what Jesus is doing, because God is a loving Father that cares. But going back to, to the verse here, back to the Lord's Prayer, our Father. But, but where is this Father? He's in heaven. He's not a normal Father. Um, I'm a dad, and I do not reside in heaven. I reside in Maryville. Uh, but our Heavenly Father resides in heaven. He's a different kind of Father, because He is also the Sovereign King. So, when, what, the, what the kingly things we see about God the Father in this prayer are, are three things that we see in the Lord's Prayer. The first is that his name is to be hallowed, that his kingdom is coming, and that his will is to be done. So first, this idea of God's name being hallowed. So hallowed is just a word that means uh, made holy. Another way to think about this is glorified. We, we are to pray for God's name to be glorified. So what does that mean? Uh, first, let's look at this idea of his name. So when God is talking about his name, he's not just talking about name. So it's not like, my name is Tanner. So the name Tanner should be glorified. God is talking about something deeper. He, let's go back to that verse I read earlier. Uh, Exodus chapter ooh, Exodus chapter 34. I believe it was verses yeah, 5 and 6. I'm just going to read it again. Then the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. So this is God proclaiming his name. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping the steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So we see here a picture that God's name is not just his name, but it encapsulates his core traits. So when we're praying for God's name to be glorified, we're praying that God's traits and who God actually is is seen and glorified and worshipped in the earth. Um, and, and so how do, how do we do that? So we do that by living lives that glorify God. Uh, we are God's representatives here on the earth. We are the ones bearing God's name. Uh, the same way that you all have a last name that represents a family, we all who are in Christ represent God. Uh, a cool verse that, that Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. So what Paul is saying is, you need to walk a certain way. You've been called to this gospel, and you have a responsibility, for lack of a better word, to live your life in line with that gospel. Now, that doesn't mean we don't have grace. That's, I'm not saying we have a workspace salvation, but what I am saying is if you are in Christ, you bear the name of God. And we have a responsibility for God's name to be hallowed, to, for his name to be glorified. And we have a responsibility to walk worthy of that call. Um, another thing to remember, though, God is the perfect creator. Ultimately, he is going to be glorified. His kingdom is coming, which is the next point. Uh, but we're praying for his name to be glorified during this time. So the next point, his kingdom is coming. God is a king with a domain. What's his domain? Everything. God is the king over everything. Uh, but something to think about here uh, is that we're living in what's called the already not yet state of God's kingdom. 
which sounds sort of confusing, but it's not. Basically, what it means is, in one sense, God's kingdom is already here. God's kingdom is already being established, but it's not yet fully established. Um, We see glimpses of God's kingdom when the church is at its best, right? In Christian community, um, and Christians helping Christians and loving each other, holding each other up in prayer and worship and service and all these things. We see glimpses of that kingdom. We see glimpses of God's kingdom when, uh, when we see just human goodness, right? People helping each other. But we also see that his kingdom isn't fully here. There is still sin. There is still death. There is still sorrow and destruction in this world. And so there are days, at least for me, when God's kingdom feels very near, where I see God moving and ministering and doing stuff. And there are days that are dark in my life, but in the world as a whole. And when God's kingdom seems so far away. But when we're praying for his kingdom to come, that's not in question. God's kingdom is going to come. So we're not praying as in we're going to like tip the balance and make God's kingdom come sooner. God's kingdom is going to come when it comes. What we're praying is that God's kingdom will be seen more and more, that we'll start experiencing more of the kingdom that is coming, that we'll start seeing less sorrow and sadness and oppression and all of these terrible things that we see in society, and that God's kingdom will continue to come and make those things go away and God's glory be seen. That, that's what we're praying, right? And then uh, his will is to be done. Um, basically, we... we Talked about this a few times, but an important thing to understand about God's kingship is that he's the boss of everyone. God's will is going to be done. It's going to happen. So again, kind of like his kingdom is coming, why would we pray about that? What's the point? What's the point about praying God's will to be done? Uh, I, I think the best way to think about this is to look at the dual nature of God's will. So with God's will, we have a revealed will and a secret will. So the revealed will is what we see in Scripture. So the, the Bible basically is God revealed will. So in God's revealed will, we see that he hates death and he hates destruction and he hates all the things that God hates. Um, and he is a God of love and he is a God that wants people to honor him and, and, and a God that is pointing towards the new creation. But there is also God's secret will and God's secret will doesn't run contrary to the revealed will. We just don't know what it is because God didn't give it to us. But God's secret will is basically the sovereign ordering of day-to-day events. We don't know what God's going to make happen tomorrow. We don't know what tomorrow's going to hold, but we know what God's revealed will is for tomorrow. So when we're praying this prayer, we're praying that basically God's scripture would come to pass. That as a people in our lives and as a community, we would continue to further show the qualities of someone who is in God and further worship God and grow in devotion to God and that God the Father will continue to be seen and, and his, his name grow. So that's what we're praying for with that prayer. Um, and, and something else to think about, going back to Romans 8, 28, the secret, God's secret will, it, it sort of sounds scary and weird, but the important thing to remember is that God is the sovereign king over everything. If God's not the sovereign king, we don't have the assurance of Romans 8, 28. That assurance carries no weight if God's not in charge. So God is in charge, and we just pray that God's will be done, and that his name be hallowed, and that his kingdom will come. So kind of to, to wrap this up here, how does all this fit together? How do we interact with a God that is both father and both king? What does it look like? So sort of a, a silly illustration, but I think is a good one, is um, think about the president. It doesn't have to be this president, any president. Uh, so think about the president. 
If I were to call the president and be like, hello, Mr. President, I got a flat tire. What are you going to do about that, Mr. President? The president has the ability to take care of my flat tire. He can do a lot of stuff. He could send me the Secret Service to get me to work on time or I don't know. He could do a lot of president stuff. When Mike Pence came to Knoxville, they shut down Pellissippi Parkway for like an hour. So I figured the president could handle my flat tire if they can shut down Pellissippi Parkway for an hour. Uh, but he's not going to because I don't have a relationship with the president. I don't have a relationship with any of the presidents. They don't know me. They'd be like, how did you get this number? And they'd be very concerned. But if the president's daughter or son comes into the president's room at 2 in the morning and says, Daddy, I need a glass of chocolate milk. The most powerful man in the world is going to wake up or stop what he's doing if he's doing something and make his child a glass of chocolate milk because the child has that relationship with the president. Um, And that is sort of a picture of what this relationship with God looks like. God is the sovereign king of the world. He's the most powerful person. He literally controls everything. But we relate to God as father. We're able to come to God and be like, hey, God, I need this. I have this problem that may sound dumb, but you care about because you're, you're a father. That's what we have. And because of that, we have the most sovereign person in the world who cares. And it's awesome. Uh, So yeah, God is father. God is king. So uh, yeah, I'm going to pray for us. Ben, come back up. Dear God, uh, thank you For this day, God, thank you that we can study your word. Thank you that you are king and father, that we can pray to you, God, but you're also powerful enough to to control everything. It's in your name we pray. Amen. If you all can stand for our closing hymn.